there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. The NBA delivered a major upset when Larry Bird was voted Rookie of the Year over Magic Johnson. At the Cannes Film Festival, in a rare split decision, both All That Jazz and Kagamusha won the Palme d'Or. Mount St. Helens kept erupting while Love Canal, New York, was evacuated, and the biggest disaster of them all, Peter Criss quit the band Kiss. Somehow, though, we soldiered on, and here's what we got to see in theaters as a reward in May of 1980. I'm Drew McQueenie, and as always, I'm joined by my esteemed co-host on the show, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you? I am good. I'm back from Fantastic Fest, and I got, of course, super sick when I got home, but I am 95% better now, and I am ready to dive into arguably the finest month of 1980. How was Fantastic Fest overall? I'm super jealous. Many, many people asked how you were. It was great, as always. We had the feud, we had the debates, uh, lots of good movies, lots of good food. It was great. This is one of those months that is the reason we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. That's part of the pleasure of this is, yeah, we all know that certain things came out in the 1980s, but until you put it month by month and kind of look at what was coming out, group next to what else was coming out, you don't get a real picture of the decade. And May of 1980 was amazing. Yeah, let, let's jump right in. Uh, I'm going to introduce a film that I know you have a lot to, to say. I, I saw it when I was a kid, had no idea what it was, and then 20 years later figured out it's a strange Jodie Foster film called Carney. What do you do? I'm a waitress. I bet you get a lot of tips. <laughs> Put one in my mouth. <laughs> I'd pay if I had the money for a bus ticket. I'd leave right now. Well, it sounds to me like you ought to be traveling with us. Full stream, win a prize. All right, you want to play again? It's the hustle on this one. There ain't no room in the middle with those guys. Gary Busey, Jodie Foster, Robbie Robertson, Carney. I actually had this confused with another movie. And there were a number of films that were like that, where the posters were similar or the titles were similar or the subject matter was close enough that I get confused about which one is which. For the longest time, I thought this was the Alan Rudolph film, Rhodey. This is instead, this is a Jodie Foster, Robbie Robertson, uh, Gary Busey film written and directed by a guy named Robert Kaler. This is a weird, weird little movie. It wants to be sort of a slice of life look at what carny life is like. Gary Busey's character is a guy named Frankie who is essentially he's the dunk tank clown and his job is to be the biggest bag of shit he can be to people so that they want to dunk him and they spend more money 
He's amazing at it. He can get under anybody's skin instantly. He meets a girl who sees him when she's there with her boyfriend. He ends up fighting the boyfriend, and then she runs away and leaves and goes on the road with him and kind of gets indoctrinated into what carny life is like. Robbie Robertson from the band is uh, one of the guys who plays one of the main carnies, and he sort of serves as our narrator into the world to show us how it all works. And there's moments in this film where it's kind of slice of life and it's showing you how carny lifestyle works and it's not bad. Other parts of this thing are, are almost like a romantic melodrama where uh, there's this weird dynamic tension between Busey and Robertson about sharing girls. And yeah. it's a really strange movie. It doesn't work. I think it's too uneven, but it's got a lot of really interesting character actors. Elijah Cook Jr., who has obviously been making movies since uh, the 30s, uh, plays one of the guys in this. You've got people like Meg Foster and Tim Thomerson, and it's watchable. It's interesting. It doesn't all work, but it's I, certainly I know, worth a look. I know the term you're looking for is uh, Robert Altman light. That, I like, think maybe that's even why I thought it was an Alan Rudolph film is it does have that weird Altman-esque. It wants to be sort of slice of life-y. Yeah, but doesn't a very slice of life, very uh, episodic. The, the production design is great. You get the feel and the, oh, the smell of the carnival life. It just kind of feels like a a strung together series of events as opposed to a, a complete cohesive narrative. And when you're Robert Altman, you can get away with that. Not so much when you're um, Robert Kaler. This is the second Jodie Foster movie we've done on the podcast, Foxes being the first. And I kind of think of Jodie Foster at this particular moment, the way I think of Michael Jackson in Off the Wall. It's sort of that disco era, young 20s. I'm going to try and do stuff that's more adult in his mind. Certainly, it feels like the beginning of Jodie Foster exploring who she was going to be as a grown-up. And those films, that was a very particular moment for her, especially for those of us that had grown up with her as like the Disney kid and the girl next door. It's really fascinating to have grown up watching her blossom from a great young actor to never missed a beat. Uh, and for every kid actor who can't make the leap, you know, there's a lot of them. And then, you know, you look at somebody like Jodie Foster, who's just a natural. She's never not been good. Say what you want about Foxes and Carney. They're not great films, but they're clearly not just uh, star making conventional films either. They were kind of that low budget studio backed indie vibe that was still coming from the late 70s. If the late 70s carnival lifestyle sounds fascinating to you and you want to see somebody trying to emulate, you know, the multi-character slice of life stuff that Robert Altman was so good at. Carney's an interesting relic. I wouldn't call it a good film, but let's move on because we have a lot of movies this month and we've dedicated more than enough time to Carney, Drew. The next film is something that I saw way too young. I should not have seen it at a formative age. It is still one of my all-time favorite Roger Corman productions. For all its puerile nature, it was also directed by a woman, Drew, what's the name of this 1980 camp horror classic? Humanoids from the Deep. Anywhere you run, any place you hide, anytime you stop, they will find you. Doug McClure, Anne Terkel, Vic Morrow. Humanoids from the Deep. This is a pretty strong R. This is one of those <laughs> movies where uh, I definitely saw it too young. I think I, I was 11. I, it was probably a year after this that I saw it. 
And I remember being shaken by it. It was intense yeah. as an experience. Yeah. What's interesting about it is that, all right, we'll keep this quick because it's basically nothing more than humanoid looking sea monsters climb out of the river and, you know, kill men and rape women. It's not a good movie, but if you want a, uh, you know, a 100% stock A to B to C monster movie uh, with lots of carnage and, and craziness, I, I think it's fun. I still like it. <laughs> Forgive me. Well, it's and that's the thing. It's extreme. It is a real exploitation film. And yep. one of the things that happened in the 80s is we saw exploitation get mainstreamed where they took the form of exploitation movies, but they calmed them down or they mainstreamed them or they smoothed the rough edges off and they made them mu much more palatable. Real exploitation films are always a little rough around the edges and they're they're crude. If they work at all, they work on a very base level. And this is one of those where Man, it is upfront about what it is. It is about repopulation. It's set during a salmon festival. It is incredibly uncomfortable. It's weird the cast it's got. Doug McClure and Vic Morrow. And it's, you know, it is an old fashioned movie in a lot of ways. Yes, I was going to say, just, it has the soul of a rather entertaining 1950s monster movie. Doesn't right, <laughs> except it's super extreme at times. Yeah, except it's, it's laden with rape. That is what is so bizarre about it is I think at that point I was still more used to seeing these TV versions of these exploitation films or seeing the Corman ones that were done before they got explicit. And so I was used to the rhythms of them. But to have it suddenly veer so sharply into truly extreme territory and then go right back to being a, a sort of a B silly film that whiplash is i think what made this film stand out when i saw it originally i think it's fun junk uh, you know this is the kind of uh cheesy nasty alien ripoff horror movies that i was raised on i wouldn't recommend to watch it with kids that's for sure <laughs> yeah uh, yeah definitely not this next one is interesting as a theatrical release simply because it's not it, it really wasn't meant as a theatrical feature it's called home movies and it's co-directed by Brian De Palma. Although he has the director's credit, this was the student project of his students at an independent filmmaking course um, that he taught at Sarah Lawrence College. The entire idea of it was, we're going to make a movie together, and the movie is going to be the process of making that movie, and it's going to be whatever it is. We're going to let this movie evolve as we shoot it and as we work on it, and that process will teach you what filmmaking is. At some point, they ended up bringing Kirk Douglas in, and it grew a little bit bigger than it was originally intended to be, and it's fascinating. It's also where he ended up in contact with Keith Gordon for the first time, who, for those of us who are De Palma fans, I really like his work with Keith Gordon, and I love that this is how they collided. Yeah, Nancy Allen and, and also Garrett Graham, who he's worked with. He would you know do a lot of films with Nancy Allen. He did Fan of the Paradise with Garrett Graham. You're kind of watching... De Palma build his company. I don't get home movies. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> oh, it's not. There's some autobiography in this. There is some stuff where he is using elements of his own personal family meltdowns. But he did the same thing later in the year with Dress to Kill. Uh -huh. And he did it much better. And so Dress to Kill is the movie that we'll talk about as a real Brian De Palma film. And I think that's the movie that's, that's worth the more conversation of the year. Home Movies is the weird footnote. Would you call it De Palma's Dark Star? Is that accurate? I think it's closer to Dark Star because Dark Star is the same thing where Dark Star, they kept adding things on and they shot little extra pieces and they tried to make this student thing into a more of a commercial theatrical thing. And, and it's neither fish nor fowl. It's one of the reasons Dark Star is such a freak show. It's yeah. such a weird John Carpenter movie because it was never meant to be a feature film. 
All right. Well, look, we're going to move on because obviously if you're listening to this podcast, there are certain films that you're going to be waiting for. You're going to be looking at these as the big shoe drop. And yes, there are movies that make bigger marks on the pop culture. And I would argue few movies made a bigger mark on pop culture than the next one. A little sequel called The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker and Han Solo rescued the princess, destroyed the Death Star, but their story didn't end there. Creators of the biggest smash hit of all time bring you the next episode in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. A big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga, The Empire Strikes Back. Coming to your galaxy next summer. I can't tell you how influential and formative this film was, and I'm sure I speak for millions of people of my approximate generation when I say that movies like The Empire Strikes Back just turned my eyeballs into saucers, and I just stared at the screen in love with being taken elsewhere. It was just, you know, a complete transport to it. Like a lot of people think that kids get into movies like, oh, it's trendy and they like toys and they like t-shirts. No, they like the toys and they like the t-shirts because they were in love with being transported to another world. That's the way it works. The movie comes first. What was interesting to me about Empire was this was the first time I was actively anticipating a movie that was coming. Until this point in my life, there was never a sense of hype for me. There was never a sense of, I have to see what's next. And the first time I remember knowing for sure there was a second Star Wars film, I was at a pharmacy with my mom, and I looked at a newsstand, and they had a magazine, and on the cover, there was a photo of Darth Vader that I knew. I knew every photo from Star Wars. That wasn't from Star Wars, and I immediately had to pick the magazine up, buy it, take it home, and figure out what the hell, how did they have images, and it was the first time I saw Empire Strikes Back photos. That was my first encounter with Starlog blew my mind that there was this whole world where what there's a magazine that tells you what's coming next and that i had no idea to me starlog was always fangoria's nerdy cousin for me it was starlog first and that was where i discovered starlog was with that empire cover i can't remember what i had for dinner two nights ago but i can tell you that my mother and my father and my sister and i stood in line at the amc premiere two which is now gone And we must have stood in line for an hour. Normally, if we wanted to see a movie that was, you know, we would have waited a week or two. We didn't care. But my mom knew that I couldn't wait. My sister was psyched, too. She was not as big as a geek as me for Star Wars, but she was definitely excited. The joy of seeing old characters again. Oh, realizing halfway through that, oh, man, this clicks right into the first one. It's not just a, 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 a like a James Bond movie, which they all stand alone. And to realize that you were watching, like I didn't know the word saga at that point or, or trilogy, but just knowing that you were watching a bigger picture that wasn't going to be completed and was part of what you already knew. I mean, it's such a beautiful movie. It's such a great adventure movie. When it comes to a handful of these movies throughout the decade, you're going to say, oh, you, you know, most of your love is sent through nostalgia. Well, I couldn't have more nostalgia for Empire, but I also saw it less than a year ago, 
And it still holds up as one of the best space adventure movies. I, I'm hesitant to call it sci-fi, sue me. But it's one of the best space adventure, fantasy, whatever you want to call it, sci-fi movies I've ever seen. And it's as good today as it was in 1980. Am I wrong? No, not at all. And it was such a great audience experience. I've written at length about the experience I had showing my kids, the twist. And that was tremendous, and it was fun, and it was really exciting to be able to build them up to it. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. No! No! It's all we talked about in the schoolyard for a year. <laughs> I, I remember the audience melting down when it happened. The sound of all the oxygen leaving the theater as people went, What? It was such an amazing feeling. And to know how many people were so tuned in to the nuance of what that meant and to feel that emotional sort of bomb go off in a theater, culturally, I don't I can't really think of much else that's been no, like that. No, and the fun thing was there was that also that argument for the next three years of maybe Darth was just messing with him. We didn't even know if it was true. So until Jedi, that's another thing that we couldn't stop talking about. Oh, who's the other Jedi? It's got to be, oh, it could be Han. Oh, my God, it could be that L Lando guy. They're like, they left you with such a bittersweet cliffhanger. I envy anybody who has yet to sit down with the original trilogy and, and go through them, be they children or 50 years old. I, any, if you haven't seen these movies and watched them as a three-part soap opera, uh, you should get on that. One of, one of the other things that I think Empire didn't get enough credit for, but it certainly worked for film nerds like me, was... When all the stories about how it got made started to come out, when they started to talk about who did what and Lawrence Kasdan, they talked about him as the screenwriter and they talked about Lee Brackett in particular. And they talked about her long connection to the past of Hollywood and how she wrote detective movies in the 30s and 40s. And she wrote this kind of stuff. She did science fiction that sent me looking at Lee Brackett, looking back at her work. And that kind of moment was part of what I think Spielberg and Lucas did almost by accident, because they were so steeped in film history and in pop culture history and in the stuff that was important to them, they passed it on to us by osmosis. And they started us down that path of, this is supposedly based on an Akira Kurosawa film. Well, who's that? I need to go find out. Oh, this, yeah. She used to work on Humphrey Bogart movies. Okay, I should go see those. That's what they did in addition to making stuff that entertained us. And Absolutely. How else would a 12-year-old American kid have heard of The Hidden Fortress if it wasn't for Star Wars? Yeah. How many times did you see it, Drew? I know I definitely saw it more than once, but I, uh, that I don't, I don't think it might have been three, but it was definitely at least two. I was a lunatic. I, you and I approached that very differently. For me, it was, it was sport to see how many times I could go in a summer. I know I saw it in Memphis first, though. Because we were in Memphis for the beginning of summer vacation, and I know that's where we saw Empire. I know it's where we saw the next film. It is one of those things where I specifically remember the auditorium we saw the, the film in for the first time, and I know I went back every chance I got. It had to have been at least 10 times, maybe 12. 
I, I think I've seen a lot of movies three times. I don't think I've ever seen something in the theater four times. Ooh, and it was all, wow. even if I, even if I loved the movie, it just felt like I was kind of dampening it or getting bored of it in some way. I've gotten more protective of rewatching things as I've gotten older. I do it, lo- I do it less often and I put that distance between them so that each time it feels like I've got some fuzz on my memory and I, I it feels new and fresh and it's not just doing karaoke while I'm watching it. All right, Drew, here's the question. Tell me one thing that's noticeably wrong with The Empire Strikes Back. Notice- Name something that doesn't work in this movie. That doesn't work in The Empire Strikes Back. Um, Two fighters against a Star Destroyer? I don't know. There's nothing wrong with The Empire Strikes Back. Nothing. There you go. And here's the, here's the thing. Did you, have you read the J.W. Rinsler books, the, the making of books? They are so essential in terms of seeing how accidentally perfect things are. There's a, a whole sequence where they recorded all of the conversations that happened on the day. Oh, they were wow. shooting the scene where... I love you. I know. We've heard for years them say, oh, well, that was an ad lib. It's not just an ad lib. It's not like Harrison goes, oh, I got something. Don't worry about it. The book traces the entire conversation between Kirshner, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher as they all work on that piece of dialogue and they all work on that moment. And you see how all of them argue for their position and they all get it just right. And it's because they all 100% understand what they're doing. It is a perfect picture that they have in their head of what the Empire Strikes Back is supposed to be. And as a result, that choice couldn't have been wrong. They were so in the zone. And you hear how they got to that place. The movie is perfect because everybody was on their A game and everybody was hungry for it. And everybody had something to prove. And it's just one of those moments. You can't ask for it. But when it happens, the result is this. And it's one of the reasons we love movies. All right, Drew, let's move on, because it's not a Star Wars exclusive podcast. Damn it. True. We got other stuff coming this month. I honestly think this next movie was in its own way as big and as landmark and for many people transformational. This is a film that cast a huge shadow over the 80s because it opened up to many kids the idea that this was even possible. And I know so many drama nerds and theater nerds and musical nerds and people who work in the performing arts now who honestly didn't know that there was even a place like the New York School of Performing Arts until they saw Alan Parker's I um, have never been a theater nerd. I've never been a musician nerd. I've never been in any of these classes. I saw Fame when I was probably 15 or 16, and I fell in love. I absolutely love this movie. It's a terrific film. I am of the opinion that Alan Parker is our great underrated musical filmmaker. I think he understands music and what he does with music and film. The, The scene in this movie that is the most famous image from the film is when the kids are on the street and they're playing the song and they end up dancing on the cars and they take over the middle of the block and they cause this traffic jam as they all spill out from school at the end of the day. It's such a terrific use of music and uh, the way he shoots it and the way he shoots dance. He loves performers. He loves the physical form. He loves the way people move to music. He clearly adores this young cast and they all get to grow over the course of their four years in school 
like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, it starts light in some places, but it packs a real punch at times, and it really doesn't go light on you. Fame as some, yeah, you would think, oh, it's just a bunch of bubbly cliches about teenagers. And to an extent, there's some of that, but there's also some heavy, dramatic lifting in this movie. It's difficult and painful and miserable for the kids. And like you said, Alan Parker, when you say his name in musicals, right off the top of my head, you think Pink Floyd, The Wall, you think uh, this film, Fame, and The Commitments. Those films alone illustrate a man who knows music in relation to cinema. Uh, Those films are all brilliant and in very different ways. He's made a couple of misfires throughout his career, but I will always see the next Alan Parker film. I am a huge fan of that guy. Well, and I, the cast here is terrific. Um, Paul McCrane, who a lot of people know primarily from RoboCop, where he's the guy who gets the insane yeah, toxic Emil. He has the worst death in film history, one of them anyway. But he is so good here as a guy sort of sort of realizing who he is, not only through finding himself as a performer, but figuring out who he is sexually. And it was not a character or an archetype that we'd seen a lot of in film before this. And I think McCrane is terrific in this movie. Really heartbreaking and lovely. And for theater f- nerds and for uh, drama nerds, Rocky Horror Picture Show, it's one of those things you have to do. You you go through Rocky Horror Picture Show at some point. It was a huge subculture. And so many of the people that I know are, that are performers, especially theatrical performers, Rocky Horror was a pivotal thing for them. And finding a theater where they could go and participate, that was a big deal. I love that they do it in this movie. And that was the first time I think culture outside of New York and the Midnight Movie Circuit even knew that the Rocky Horror thing was happening. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I never thought of it that way. But yeah, uh, a lot of people like the remake as well. Barely remember anything about the remake. I remember thinking it had some nice choreography. But I watched the TV show most of the time it was on. That was, oh, yeah, that that's was a, right. It was a po- wildly popular show. I completely forgot and about it. And it had some of the same cast crossed over, like uh, Lee Carreri, the kid that played Bruno. He was on the show. And Albert Haig, the guy who played Professor Shirovsky. Uh, made the jump to the series and was a huge part of the show. How, that year, what did that run for four or five years at least, right? It ran for a while. And in syndication after it was on networks, it kept going for a while. It was one of those things the show could never have the same kind of bite the film did. I remember even at the time thinking, you know, the film could go so much further. But because the show backed up and did it year by year, they got to go, I, I think, a little further with the characters. So it was an interesting trade off. And it was a powerful thing for a while. Like, fame really had a life, and it had some legs for a time. Um, This next one, I'm going to let you introduce, because I know you are a big fan, Scott, and uh, why wouldn't you be? Big fan growing up of of the Charlie Brown and the Peanuts cartoons. I mean, of course, everybody loves the Great Pumpkin, and everybody loves Christmas Charlie Brown with the little tree. Uh, But a lot of people may not know that back in the day, uh, the Peanuts gang appeared in uh, three, I believe, feature films. Uh, there was um, there was Snoopy Come Home, Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, and then there was this one, the lovable Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown, and Don't Come Back. Wednesday, the Peanuts gang's on the move. We bring you greetings from across the sea. We're making new friends and learning the ways of the world. Bon Voyage, Charlie Brown. That's me. One of the things that freaked me out about this, and it's it's one of those things where you don't realize how important a signature of a series is until they break one of their rules. It weirds me out that there are adults that actually speak dialogue in this movie. Oh, yeah, that is kind of a strange thing for a Charlie Brown movie. Uh, it's basically the kids go overseas to uh, to France. They're uh, foreign exchange students. 
And it's very charming and very funny. Well, I wouldn't say very funny, but it's great for kids. These movies still hold up really well. Uh, I still think Race for Your Life, Charlie Brown, is my favorite. Can I tell you that one of the one of the observations I've made, one of the things I've been struck by as I've shown these films to my kids is Charlie Brown movies are bummers. By and large, there is this weird melancholy that is part of the Charlie Brown signature. And it's, it's true of the specials, whether it's Great Pumpkin or whether it's the Christmas special. There's always that tinge of sadness. There's always that sense that shit just really doesn't work out for Charlie Brown very well. The films, I think, really leaned on that at first, which made this one and Race for Your Life a little bit more enjoyable because these seem like they eased up on that. It wasn't quite as gloom and doom and Charlie Brown getting fucked by cosmic karma. Yeah, I mean, even as a kid, I'm not sure what the psychology of it is, but really, I empathize with Charlie Brown. Kids really do, because even when he wins, he kind of loses. Yeah, the interesting thing about this just biographically is that the place that they stay, the chateau where the kids go and stay while they're uh, overseas, is based on the place where Charles Schultz stayed when he was billeted in France as a soldier during World War II. Uh And a lot of the uh, specific artwork and a lot of the designs and a lot of the look and feel of Europe and France in this is specifically drawn from his time there during World War II and his memories of it. Yeah, I suspect that my affection for the Peanuts films is based out of nostalgia. I love the voices of the kids. I love the style of the animation. I love the music, of course, the wonderful music. I don't know if I'll ever see those those original Peanuts movies again. I'm a grown man, of course, <laughs> but uh, they hold a special place in my heart because they were just very comfortable, you know, sweet movies to watch as a kid. Not hilarious, yeah. not action packed, but just sweet. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I've had to consider because I do, you know, it's what do we pass on? What do we show our kids and what do we not? And what holds up? And and I would say that the Peanuts films holds up. Hold up. You just have to understand going in that they are not like modern children's films. They are not afraid to embrace that sadness and that sense that you can fail and things don't always work out. I think that is what makes them special. It's one of the reasons they feel timeless is we don't do that to such an extreme now that I feel like we have put rubber baby bumpers on everything in terms of pop culture when it comes to kids to make sure that it's all safe and it always has to work out. What uh, what did you think of the recent uh, Peanuts movie? I thought it was kind of faithful. I thought it was an interesting attempt to do those designs in 3D. They stayed true to the idea that fate has its thumb on Charlie Brown. The film, though, did the modern thing of, and now we've got to let him up and we got to make sure that Charlie Brown gets every possible win by the end of the movie. Yeah. It, it, but then it get, kind of goes back to what you said earlier. Times are a bit more cynical and now you, you need uh, more, maybe a sweet, more complete ending for children. I thought the Peanuts movie, the new one, was pretty damn charming. I thought they leaned too much on the uh, the Snoopy versus Red Baron stuff. And I know that sounds like a nitpick, but it's virtually half the movie and it's not that it's way too much. It's not that interesting. And all the stuff with the kids is either funny or sweet. And I enjoyed that. But every time they cut back to Snoopy, I could have done with half of the Snoopy. As, as a an old school fan of these characters, I thought that the, the new Peanuts movie was nice. All right. Let, let's move on to a very cool Western with a very interesting gimmick. I have huge affection yeah. for Walter Hill in general. Of course. I specifically have a huge affection for the Long Riders. 
They were nine men. They were four families of brothers. They rode together from Missouri to Minnesota and from Texas to Tennessee. They were the most famous outlaw heroes of the West. They were known as the Long Riders. This is their story, and it's as close to the truth as legends can ever be. Now you don't give us no trouble, mister. As a kid, I was kind of uh, hot and cold on Westerns. If it had a lot of action or something like Silverado, I would be into it. But for some reason, I didn't get into the Long Riders uh, until I was older. And the, the most fascinating thing about the movie is that the film has four sets of brothers in the film, and they're all played by four sets of brothers. The younger gang is played by the three Carradines. The James gang is played by James and Stacy Keach. The Milner gang is played by Dennis and Randy Quaid. The Ford brothers are played by Nicholas and Christopher Guest. It's awesome. And it's one of the first of all, I love seeing all these brothers together. I love seeing Dennis and Randy in a film together as the Millers. I love seeing Christopher and Nicholas Guest because when are you ever going to see those two on screen together again? No, it's really sensational that he put this cast together. But then on top of it, it's not just a gimmick. They're all terrific yeah, performers. It's a good These are Western. all great actors. It's a good Western, too. It's not just, isn't that clever that we got a bunch of brothers to play brothers? And It's also a very fun, standard, but very well-made Western. Look, Walter Hill, he is so style-driven. And he is, a as a director, we talk about how the 80s sort of became that era where dialogue became less important, image became more important. And there was a sense that as MTV's influence pushed in, good filmmakers were working in nonverbal ways. And Walter Hill was a guy who, when you look at his screenplays on the page, he would go through and yank out almost every line of dialogue if he could. He hated dialogue. And he loved to let things just live and breathe and be. And this is a great example of that. He started with a script that was written by two other guys, Bill Bryden and Stephen Smith, James and Stacey Keach actually did some of the writing on the picture, which I think was their way into it and may have been one of the things that started Hill thinking about casting real brothers for, for everybody um, to have that talent pool where you could find that many talented sets of brothers who were at the right age, who were the right kinds of guys who were the right charisma. He really lucked out. The The result is something that I think feels more authentic and more lived in than a lot of other Westerns. And especially, this was not an era where everybody was still doing the Western very well. And here's Hill just knocking one out of the park. It's generally kind of forgotten. Even among Walter Hill's filmography, it's kind of overlooked. But if you want to see a good Western that uses its casting gimmick to very good effect, is this one of those lost ones? Uh, here's the thing. Some of these movies, and I'm finding as I'm I'm trying to track stuff down to watch it, we're going to do a movie next month, a Burt Reynolds movie that I can't find. It's like it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and considering who directed it and who stars in it, it's a little shocking. Long Riders, I think Amazon Video, you can rent it maybe, but it's not currently on any of the streaming services. I've seen it cycle through. I'll see it pop up. It'll be on there for like four months. Then whatever package it's part of will rotate back off. You know what? Cha cable channel is really good for movies like this. Encore and or Movieplex. They're all they're both owned by stars. But if, you, if you're a fan of 70s and 80s obscurities, like, you know, most cable channels will eventually play Raging Bull. But not every cable channel will eventually play The Long Riders. 
and stuff does. It just rotates in and out of circulation based on these packages. So for something like the Long Riders, it's MGM UA is who owns the rights to it. So you know it'll get circled back in at some point. So just keep a list. And, and if you haven't seen this one, it's worth it, especially if you like Westerns and you want to see something where uh, it's a post-Peck and Paw. It's very aware of, of how the Western myth has been used and changed, but it's also very traditional in some way. It really does it well. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, the standard Jesse James and various gang story, but as you, one would expect from Walter Hill, he's fascinated by violent men. Walter Hill is not, a lot of people think he's just action, but it's not just action. The reason Walter Hill is such a respected name among film buffs is because Walter Hill is interested in the mentality of the men holding the guns, not just that they're shooting. And, uh, you know, whether it's like last man standing or streets of fire, the guy is just an artist with action. He really, yeah, it's never chaos. Every gun, every shot fired in say like the Northfield, Minnesota ambush, which is one of the major highlights of the movie, but every shot fired in that is for a point and there's a reason and you feel it and I, the stunt work in this is impeccable it's really well made yes the long riders strongly recommended if you've not seen it and if you have if you see it on our recommendation let us know on twitter because that to us that is like almost as good as getting paid to do this podcast top would be getting paid but the second best thing is having somebody say, I either never saw it or I'd never heard of it, and you guys, your show, made me watch it, and I loved it. That is what it's all about. I presume nobody is going to say that to me about the next film. <laughs> nobody is going to say that about the next film. Um, I It was recently released by Shout Factory as a Blu-ray. I watched that Blu-ray. I don't ever need to play that Blu-ray again. Oh, man. I, on the other hand, speaking of Encore Channel, I'm pretty sure this is where I finally dug this up probably in the 2000s where I was just, it doesn't matter how bad a movie could be. If it's something that you've been searching for, for 10 or 15 years and you see it pop up on a cable channel and you can either throw in a VHS tape to record it or now of course DVR it, you was like buried treasure. I was so excited to watch the gong show movie. <laughs> and then I, I say to Milton, Milton, if you please. The gong show movie is making people angry. You die now. The gong show movie is very revealing. But best of all, the gong show movie is unfit for TV. The gong show movie. The gong show that was gonged by the censor. It's the gong show you could never see on TV. From Universal Pictures. <laughs> Okay, so the Gong Show was a um, afternoon syndicated reality show that was three quasi celebrities sitting on a judging panel, and typical normal Americans would come out do terrible acts, and if you got three gongs, you had to stop performing. It was sometimes the acts would be funny, sometimes the acts would be endurance tests, sometimes they would just be horrifying. You just couldn't believe what you were looking at. And it really did feel like part of the uh, appeal of the show was the freak quality of we we're going to scrape the absolute bottom of the barrel and put them on TV. And Chuck Barris, the host of it, rode herd over all of this lunacy and constantly looked like he was either so embarrassed he wanted to run out the back door or so delighted at the chaos that he never wanted to leave. Yeah, if you really want to look at like the shock value TV that, you know, I guess was reached its zenith, kind of like with the Jerry Springer and whatnot. Like, this might have been one of the progenitors of that vibe. So the show, for a brief period of time, was a sensation. It was a hit. 
And Chuck Barris, who, of course, many of our listeners will know Chuck Barris uh, because Sam Rockwell played him in the brilliant George Clooney film, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. If you have not seen Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, hit pause on this podcast and go watch it because it's amazing. Anyway, Chuck Barris was a certifiable lunatic and perhaps a CIA agent. We don't know. Uh, He directed and co-wrote this movie with even by then very prolific indie filmmaker Robert Downey Sr., it promptly hit everybody's turkey of the year list. It was like like Spice World. Something's really hot. Throw a movie into production. Doesn't matter. Quality control is not of utmost importance. Get it into theaters and see if we can get a couple bucks. And that's exactly what the Gong Show movie is. It's a, ostensibly it's a behind the scenes look at the crazy wackiness that goes on behind the scenes of the gong show and as anybody who's worked in television could probably tell you uh, what goes on behind the scenes at the gong show is probably nothing as wacky as what happens in this movie and the insane thing is it's like he's making a fellini film he is this put upon tortured genius who has to live in this world of lunatics and bizarros and freaks and they're constantly pushing into his life and getting between him and his his wife at the time, Robin Altman. And it is surreal, the ego that is on display in this movie. But Drew, is it ego or is he satirizing himself? I think he wants to do one, but I think the other is in charge. And I think it's that weird. It's trying to be a meta statement. But at the same time, Chuck Barris is clearly I'm too smart for this room. I'm too cool for this room. How did I end up stuck with all these rubes and weirdos? And there is a contempt that's built in that's really unsettling while you're watching. Hey, you know what? As you say that, you know, it reminds me of the Jerry Springer movie Ringmaster. That also has that really smug, superior look at this white trash vibe that like even as Ringmaster, which, of course, is never going to be a good movie. But it has this nasty, seamy tone that makes it much worse than just junk. So, yeah, the Gong Show movie, it is absolutely terrible. But if you want a, a <laughs> I say this a lot, if you want a really ugly relic of low end pop culture from 1979 and 1980, uh, the Gong Show movie will fill, fit that fit that bill. And it might make you like stunned to realize like what kind of junk would make it into theaters in the, in this era. Uh, so we got to agree that the Gong Show movie is probably the worst movie of 1980. Drew? It's bad. It's very, very bad. I can't think of uh, many that are worse. Except our next film. This always fascinates me. You start, everybody starts somewhere. But when you, you got a director who has made some really good films, or at least some fun films over the years, Joseph Rubin, the director of this film, would go on to do The Stepfather, Dreamscape, and The Good Son. Those are his three best movies, right? I would, I would say, yeah. Oh, and Money Train. Of course, Money Train. But what what, is, what did Joseph Rubin direct in 1982? Gorp is a film made without any prejudice to sex. I'm just here to have fun. Sex and fun. No commitments. Just like the guys, right? On the plus side, Gorp is contemporary in its treatment of sexual morality. Gorp, the comedy that mouths off with something to offend everyone just when you thought it was safe to go to the bathroom. Gorp. If somebody said, oh, meatballs made money, <laughs> let's make it raunchy. Yeah, let's and let's call it Gorp. Gorp. That'll pack them in. What's it about, Drew? Give us the breakdown. 
Uh, it's the waiters versus everybody. It is a snobs against the slobs comedy. It is. It's kind of the um, the setting of Dirty Dancing. It's a summer camp movie, and it is. It's about the uh, the people that work there versus the people that are going there. The wealthy kids that are attending the camp. Yeah, it is completely out of character for the later uh, Joseph Rubin films. Like you, you see the movies that he ended up making, Sleeping with the Enemy, and you know he did mainstream sort of uh, down the middle thrillers, and he did them well, and and he had a, a knack for it. But he started in stuff like the Pom Pom Girls. Gorp was, I don't know, fifth, maybe fifth, sixth movie, something like that, and and was a definite attempt to cash in on the cycle that had already begun with meatballs and animal house. And that was clearly a building uh, sort of subgenre. Unless you like really pure out comedy. The only reason to see this film is to see a very young Rosanna Arquette or Dennis Quaid over the course of this podcast, Drew and I are going to cover many, many, what are what were known as teen sex comedies. And aside from if they had maybe one or two good gags and what actors are in it that went on to bigger things, or maybe the director or writer went on to bigger things. But for the most part, these movies are just rotten. They're terrible. They're about uh, ugly, desperate, mean-spirited characters who uh, they think are surrogates for the audience in some way. And they head off to do a bunch of gross, raunchy shit I don't have much patience for the teen sex comedies anymore. I haven't seen this one since I was a kid. And if you don't like something like this as a kid, it's bad. Well, and this one, this one's almost impossible to find at this point. This is one of those movies that is, is missing in action and very, very uh, hard to find. It rarely shows up in circulation. It's gore. It's weird. These movies didn't have much to recommend them aside from. And honestly, this was their currency when they were on cable. Uh, one of the reasons you would recommend it is if it had actual nudity. And this one does. And I think for that reason, it probably got watched occasionally. But it, there's nothing to recommend it about in terms of story right. or character. And or when you else, live in, it just doesn't When stick. you live in an era in which if you're desperate to see naked boobs, you can click two buttons on your browser and you see naked boobs. When you were our age, when you would sit down with a, you know, what you knew was a junkie comedy – was there going to be nudity was part of the appeal because that was very rare back then. I don't know. Maybe Gorp is somebody else's cup of tea. I don't know. Well, it's funny because that, that, that movie literally exists basically as exploitation, And that's, that's what it is. It's a comedy designed specifically for that market. This next film sort of promised that, but wasn't that. Yeah. This and is another gimmick movie. There's a lot of gimmick movies coming out this month, Drew. Now the, the Starlog issue that I mentioned to you that had the Empire Strikes Back on the cover had an article that I remember about how Universal was really steering into genre films for the year 1980. And they had a piece where they had all of the genre films for 1980 listed that Universal was releasing. And they included stuff like Cheech and Chong's next movie because there's a spaceship in it. Yep. And one of the films that they specifically highlighted was this next film, which was the big screen debut of Maxwell Smart in The Nude Bomb. This is Don Adams. Would you believe I'm back in my first movie? Would you believe me? Agent 86 is on the trail of a deadly ring of weirdos. Would you believe my agents and me are going to expose the enemy? Or is it vice versa? Well, believe it. See me, Don Adams, as Maxwell Smart. Sorry about that, Chief. In The Nude Bomb. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. For those who aren't familiar, 
the nude bomb is based on a Buck Henry Mel Brooks TV series called Get Smart, which is actually quite good. And it was very painful to see something that I enjoyed so much as a kid go to the big screen and have it just crash and burn because it's not good. No, it's not good. But yet the TV show is so good. What? How does that happen? It was the same people. Well, not the exact same people, but. Well, and that's the thing. It really wasn't. Clive Donner, who uh, directed this, Clive Donner is a guy who uh, his best known film, I would argue, is probably What's New Pussycat. What's New Pussycat is a movie that if you look at it now, man, it does not age well. It is not a particularly nimble film. It's it's a satire on sort of hippie culture that was from the point of view of the pearl clutching English establishment going, oh, my God, look at these crazy hippies. And I think Clive Donner, by the time he did Nude Bomb in 1980, this was a guy born in 1926. This is this is a movie that should have been young and fun and had this energy to it. And it is TV quality at best at a time when TV was not the equivalent of feature films. It just wasn't. And I think there's this real feeling that it didn't make any kind of big jump to the big screen. It's kind of embarrassing. Don Adams, while a very funny man and does get a couple chuckles in the movie, uh, it's just an extended weak episode of Get Smart. Yeah, even fans of the TV show, I think we're, we're let down by this. Barbara Feldon, who was such a huge part of the TV series as Agent 99, wasn't part of the movie. And there was this weird feeling that they weren't really doing a sequel to the show. Do you remember who they replaced her with? Sylvia Crystal. Sylvia Crystal, of course. Yeah. Who we'll get to in a couple of years in private lessons. Oh, boy. I don't understand how you do this and you don't have uh, Mel Brooks involved. It, to me, that seems like... It's Mel Brooks, one of the funniest men in film history with one of the best runs of theatrical comedies in history. And this is the year 1980. This isn't now where Mel Brooks has had 20 years where he hasn't really worked the same way. This is right after his best run of movies. You would have thought that would have been a priority for Universal. I don't know how you you greenlight this without him. And then also you're making a movie called The Nude Bomb and you make it PG where literally the joke is you don't see anything. So, yeah, The Nude Bomb, if you're a get smart completist, I would say, sure, check it out just so you can close the door. Uh, It was released uh, when they put it on TV. They changed the title to The Return of Maxwell Smart. Try not to put the word bomb in your movie title. That's just. Yeah, that's probably not wise. I guess that's the thing. It's a very cynical cash in of a movie. And considering what the original Get Smart was, I think the people that really got screwed there are the fans, are people that that were fans of Get Smart. They must have really felt let down by the fact that there was just so little care put into making the jump to the big screen. We've dedicated enough time to the the Get Smart movie. Uh, The next one I'm going to leave to you because I believe it's a 1976 film. It is. That did not get released in the States until 1980, and it is a chop-socky Saturday afternoon martial arts film called... Kill or Be Killed. They are the gladiators of the modern age, summoned for a contest of martial arts supermen that becomes a struggle for survival. Kill or Be Killed. This is the greatest in martial arts entertainment because there can be no second best when you heed the command to kill or be killed. Rated PG. Uh, This is a cheap and crummy movie with a few decent fight scenes. 
it looks like it has a, a really, a truly international cast and an international crew where a lot of different people were working on this thing, but it is super cheap. It basically exists as a series of stunts and series of fights, uh, next to no story in it and was, I think, dumped here once they finally found a title that, that kind of worked as an American title. It, it doesn't have anybody that broke out and became then a bigger star. Yes, it happened. I think if you are an action enthusiast, you may know this film for certain sequences. But man, it is, it is not one that uh, that has anybody necessarily that would hook you in. Okay, great. Killer be killed. That's for our completists like Bob Freelander and whatnot. Okay, forget that. Now we're moving on to an obscurity that was dis- rediscovered by our good friends at Draft House. And let me tell you, when these guys dig up buried treasure from the 70s and 80s, you should pay attention because you're down for something wonderfully bizarre. And that is definitely the case with Stunt Rock. Ladies and gentlemen, sorcery. <laughs> When the trailer first started making its appearances every year at Buttonamathon and when it would show up in front of Draft House programming and it became one of those events where the forget the film, the trailer would make yeah. us go bananas yo, yo, every single time. Pause the podcast, pause it right now and go watch the trailer for Stunt Rock. We'll wait. Drew, let's talk about like uh, chicken or something. What'd you have for dinner last night? I, I, I actually had Stunt Rock for dinner last night. I ate Stunt Rock every night. Tell our listeners about the auteur, the wonderful Brian Trenchard Smith, Woo! who uh, this guy has been making, well, some schlock that's not very good and some schlock that's quite good since at least yeah, 1980. I love the fact that in Not Quite Hollywood, the Australian exploitation documentary, Brian Trenchard Smith gets quite a bit of screen time and deservedly. As well, so. he should. Yeah, yes. deservedly. So this is a guy who uh, he made exploitation junk. And he did it with an enthusiasm and with a real sense of skill and style that I, I think elevates a lot of these movies. For God's sake, BMX Bandits yeah. is kids, Goonies, bike adventure movie. It's so much better than it should be. Yeah, I think the first Brian Trenchard Smith film I ever saw was um, Escape 2000, a.k.a. Turkey Shoot. That's a really good one. Yeah, and I just, he's got a distinctive name. So over the years, I was like, oh, I remember that guy from that. And I, I didn't see Stunt Rock until many, many years later. But uh, I've been following Brian Trenchard Smith's career. Lots of our friends, like Brian Kelly, absolutely love him. Uh, Stunt Rock is virtually plotless, but it has some amazing stunts, of course, and it has some amazing rock. <laughs> <laughs> and it's by a band called Sorcerer, which is Sorcery, which is a um, big prog rock band that has, you know, like the wizard costumes and everything else. And and the whole hook of this is that you have the band that is also stunt people and they do both. And I mean, the movie is it's crazy. The stunt sequences are genuinely gigantic. It's fun. It's dumb. It's ridiculous. N- oh, it's nonsense, it's but it is really fun. well-made nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and Grant Page, the, the star in it, the the Australian stuntman who is the, the lead in this film, 
you do get a sense that he's just a crazy person who will do pretty much anything on camera. And there's a real charm to that. Like this is a movie from 1978 that didn't get released in America until 1980. It, Barely got a release when it did. It was not a thing. I think they were trying to make sorcery happen and they wanted it to be a thing where it was going to do the big, you know, U.S. tour to go with it. It didn't happen. It's a terrific, weird, crazy, uh, low budget exploitation film and so worth finding simply because there's nothing else you'll ever see that's exactly like it. It is its own thing. 100%. I'm fairly certain that our friends at Draft House released it. Is that am I am I correct in that? Did they release it? I know that Code Red DVD put it out at one point. I know that it's uh, it has been through many hands, but I know that Draft House has done their best to make people aware of it, and certainly not quite Hollywood by including footage from it did a lot to help get people to to pay attention to it as well. Drew, our next movie has a very interesting ensemble. Why don't you introduce it? It's another one of these films directed by a guy who is better known as a producer. Uh, he's done a few films, and this is one of them. And I always think of this in American Hot Wax, an earlier movie, uh, kind of hand in hand. This is The Hollywood Nights, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Tony Danza. Hi, I'm the advertising guy for a new movie called The Hollywood Nights. The Hollywood Nights are hysterically funny. Take it from me. Would I lie to you? It's a masterpiece. It's wild. It's outrageous. It's revolting. And so are The Hollywood Nights. But they're not just a movie. They're as nice a bunch of guys as you'll ever want to know. Good, clean American kids fighting for truth, justice, and anything they can get away with. The Hollywood Nights, rated R. To see it all, you'll have to see the movie. Coming soon to a theater near you. Interesting that you would pair it with American Hot Wax. I always paired this one up with the Lords of Flatbush. Ooh, interesting. I can see that too. I mean, they're same director, and they both have the same kind of tone, which is they're kind of serious, but they want to be funny. I don't think of them as comedies, but I think characters in them are aggressively trying to be funny. They're all these films. I well, at least this one is basically you know all inspired by American Graffiti. If you would say that Meatballs and Animal House led directly to Gorp, then, yeah, I would say that uh, American Graffiti led directly to this. And, you know, like you said, one of the things that distinguishes it is you see people like T.K. Carter and Mike Binder in very early roles, guys who went on to do more work. You see them as really young dudes in a, in a movie like this. It all takes place on Halloween night in the mid-60s in Beverly Hills. Okay, And so it's the gang who is running around and doing pranks and... Running away from the cops, being very boisterous. Yeah. And it's just chaos for, for one night, one long night. One of the things that, that bums me out is this is one of those movies that was shot uh, partially at the Van Nuys Drive-In. It was the Valley Drive-In in Los Angeles. It was like, uh, for many people, it was the drive-in of their youth. It's not there anymore. It kills me because so many films use this as the drive-in theater they shot at over the years that... I see it, and I, I feel like that is the iconic, archetypical American drive-in movie theater, and it just doesn't exist now. It's not there. That's how I feel when I watch Trading Places, because it was shot in Philadelphia, and it looks a lot different now. Or Rocky One. I bet there's Philly movies that look totally, that you don't recognize that Philly at all at this point. It's funny, if you look at the Philly skyline from the art museum steps now, compared to the original Rocky it's it's funny because a lot of the landmarks are still there, but a lot of buildings have grown up around it. How did we get into this, Drew? We get to close this unbelievably generous month of movies with two horror films that I know both Drew and I love, yet they couldn't possibly be more different. 
And I'm going to start with Sean Cunningham's original Friday the 13th. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Friday the 13th. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday the 13th. Rated R. Now, I, I, what I meant to do is open my browser and read part of Roger Ebert's review, the late, wonderful Roger Ebert, who could talk shit about just about any movie, and I would forgive him, except The Raid. God, he hated The Raid. I never get that. Anyway, uh, Friday, <laughs> Friday the 13th, uh, he, he pilloried these films because they were shockingly gory in an era in which very few films were shockingly gory, uh, and failed to, in my opinion, failed to recognize the artistry of gore. And accept that graphic violence, in some ways, was just as legitimate as uh, as cobwebs and and fangs. It's just you know horror films are evolving. That doesn't mean that every horror film should be as gory as Friday the Thirteenth. But I, I think a lot of critics at the time were had kind of blinders on and were offended by the material. It kind of shaded their perspectives on. Some fairly well-made stuff. Now, Friday the 13th was not made by Paramount, but they did buy it. That in and of itself is fairly uncommon. Paramount is not necessarily one of those companies that goes out and purchases indie horror films. But Sean S. Cunningham had set up such a clever pre-marketing campaign or taken out ads in trades, and, and the title alone seemed to be Money in the Bank, which of course it was. And uh, and Paramount would eventually come to look at this franchise as sort of a redheaded stepchild, and the films got progressively worse for the most part. But I would go toe to toe in a debate with any horror fan that the first at least two Friday the Thirteenth and probably Part Four are pretty scary horror films. Would you agree, Drew? The first Friday the Thirteenth um, worked on me one hundred percent when I saw it, and I didn't simple see it right. Before. I mean, in a cabin. In the woods, you don't barely know anybody. They went missing, and it's raining. It's not rocket science. Here's the thing. Gene Siskel didn't just hate this movie. Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert actually dedicated an entire episode of their show to talking about how horrible this movie was and how it was the end of civilization. And in Friday the 13th, we watch as a young woman primps provocatively in a bathroom mirror as she is stalked by a hatchet killer. This is yet another film connecting sex with violence, a film saying... Act this way, young women, and you're asking for trouble. In the past year, I must have seen that scene 100, 150 times. Every movie of this kind has eight or ten scenes just like that. I am sick of them. I dread going to these kinds of movies. It really has become the most depressing part of my job as a film critic. And there we are in total agreement, as far as I'm concerned. You know, we go to see these movies, and in a way, I almost feel as if I don't belong in the theater, because everybody else apparently went to these movies, movies like this, voluntarily. They're happy to be there. They're reacting. I feel like an undercover spy in the dark. They also, um, Gene Siskel, this is extraordinary. Think about a critic doing this now. Say a critic didn't like a movie that, that Disney put out. Imagine publishing the home address of the chairman of Walt Disney and saying, go to their home, write to them and tell them you're doing something immoral. Yeah, uh, that's I mean, what they did. They went crazy. about We've this all film. had our Cisco and Ebert moments. I think that, for example, like human centipede two and three are like the lowest of the low, but like, I would never call for a boycott. I would never call for I, those movies make me sick. 
but they still have a right to be made and people still have the right to watch them if they want. Clearly what we were seeing was a cultural reaction. We were seeing something where it was a dividing point in the culture. You know, you and I have talked already on this podcast at least once about the fact that um, Fangoria was somewhat forbidden material in our homes. It was because of the graphic violence. It was, And the movies were the same way. It, there was a genuine disconnect between us in terms of why would you even want to see it? Now, I remember going to summer camp that year for the first time, and I had not seen the film, and I'm glad I hadn't. All the older kids had seen it right before they got to summer camp, and so I heard the film secondhand. I didn't get to see it until a year and a half later when it was on a marathon on Halloween night on cable, and I remember watching it with my friend Don and the two of us sitting there in our in his living room, and I remember the ending of Friday the 13th, the pop out of the water at the end. I went over the back of the couch, lost my mind. I thought it was a great ending. And yeah, it's the Carrie ending. Yes, it's exactly borrowed. But just in a brute force, absolutely effective kind of way, I still think Friday the 13th really works. And I think that there is a reason it then became the model that so many other people imitated and chased. And the other reason that this first one is so different, and it's something that, you know, you've got to be a fan of the series or at least somebody who's watched the series to understand the distinction, but it's not a Jason movie that is unique among the Friday the 13th. Movies. And how creepy is Betsy Palmer? How creepy yeah. is she? Come she's on. She's very good. She is. She is a good villain. She's well cast. I like the the way the reveal is ha- is handled. And I think ultimately the film is built pretty well. It's a nice switch where they, they finally show who it is. I actually saw Friday the 13th part two first. And I was at my Aunt Marie's uh, in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. Now, my Aunt Marie, absolutely wonderful lady. But I d- had just met her new husband. And, and there were kids there that I didn't know. So I hadn't seen my Aunt Marie in over a year. And it was, so I just felt very alien. I felt very uh, isolated, alone. And we watched it, me and my aunt and her husband, we watched Friday the 13th Part 2, and that scared the living shit out of me. Then they, when it was over, they immediately said, all right, Scott, sleep on the couch. Good night. Up to bed. And they, they both went up to bed, and I was on the couch in this small house I'd never been in before with relatives I barely knew, and I had a horrible evening. Uh, and uh, I think the next week, me and my buddies immediately rented the first one. For years, I was convinced that part two is better. And many, many horror geeks who we respect would say that part two is better. I don't know. I think I still might like part one just a bit more. All I'm saying is, ultimately, it is very simple story. It is very basic story structure. There's nothing deep to it. But watch the original Friday the 13th in a dark room and tell me it's not a creepy movie. It's not just gore. It has some chops. I'll tell you who I think the two uh, the two most valuable players for Friday the Thirteenth are. I think Henry Manfredini, yes, the music is one of them. I think his score, and I think in particular the <laughs> genius. It's the mysteriousness of it. It sounds like a person, but then you listen to it another a week later, it kind of sounds like a string instrument. You you can you can easily impersonate it, but nobody can impersonate it perfectly. It's brilliant because you recognize it immediately. It is theirs yeah it's their jaws theme and it's very creepy very like taken out take it outside of the pop culture realm in which we all like imitate it and make fun of it in the in the film it's pretty creepy and i think the other thing the other mvp for me is tom savini and i think his work in the movie is crazy good 
And it feels to me like punk rock. There's this element that you get the sense Tom Savini was out of his fucking mind. Yeah. And he was just determined he was going to make it look amazing. He was going to make the gore amazing. What can we do? Well, can you put uh, can you put a spear through both of them? Yeah, no problem. Sure. Can you slit her throat and make it look real? Uh, yeah. Sure. And then it's like, all right, well, if we can do those... The naysayers and the people who are really offended by this stuff would, you know, just say, oh, how would you want to look at that? But I'm sorry, that's somebody's art. That's as legitimate as Ray Harryhausen. That's somebody's art. One of the things you got to remember it's about Savini, and one of the reasons I think he's unique among the the makeup guys is there's the guys that came out of the Dick Smith School, like Rick Baker, who they, they approached it very much as sort of a art project. I get the feeling that Rick Baker grew up I know he did around Bob Burns and he saw monster makeup and he kind of loved the artistry of it. And he loved the idea of making it to me. I always saw Rick Baker as a, like a man, a master monster creator. And I always saw Tom Savini as the master gore maker. Well, and that's, that's the difference. I think, I think Baker came to it as an artist. I think, for Savini, he was a Vietnam vet and he came back and he had this thing where I, I think he's working shit out. I think there is a there is a more savage edge to Savini's work precisely because Savini had seen actual death. And I think there is a sense here that what he's doing is heightened and crazy. And there is a an element of almost punk rock danger to Savini. Right. And imagine the year he had. He just, um, between, uh, we talked about Maniac already, and neither of us are- Jesus, which is crazy. Right, work. but I mean, just imagine if you are if you had Maniac and Friday the 13th, you just had your best year ever. <laughs> yeah, and, and arguably, you've raised the conversation about, is it art? Is it exploitation? What is it? And I think Savini is a guy that you have to consider in that conversation. He's brilliant. Uh, he's brilliant. So then the other end of the scale, when you're talking about how horror was treated by filmmakers and by- um, and sort of by the studios, like how they handle the release of something. You have Friday the 13th where they buy this little indie film and they release it. And they and there is this sense that it's a step above porn in the way it's treated by cer- certain critics. Then you have Stanley Kubrick making his debut in horror with an adaptation of Stephen King's seminal novel, The Shining. masterpiece of modern horror directed by stanley kubrick starring jack nicholson and shelley duval rated r opens friday june 13 check newspapers for local listings my mother and father would have never watched friday the 13th with me and my sister but when the shining was on tv that was all fair game that was probably how i first saw the shining on on uh, network television and I think for a, you know, a 10 or 11 or 12 year old kid, that's probably the best way for them to see The Shining first. I didn't necessarily need to see the more adult stuff to get the living shit scared out of me. And it wasn't just Jack Nicholson. And I'm sure most people, as soon as they say that, they know exactly where I'm going with this. It's the location. That hotel is wonderfully creepy. The idea that they're stuck there and they can't leave is so fascinating to me. That trumps virtually everything else in the movie. The other thing that I I think is so interesting in the film, and it stands completely independently from King's book. King's book is a totally different thing, and I love King's book. I think it is a very personal novel for him. I think it is a, a phenomenal book about alcoholism. I think it is a book about responsibility as a father. I think... What the book does is singular, and I think it it came in a very particular moment for King where he had to write that book. It's it's very personal. The movie, though, 
it's its own creature and it's totally different. And I think uh, the idea that he wanted to make a haunted house movie and he wanted to build the world's most unbelievable haunted house for himself to play in, you, you can't overestimate the importance of the production design or the use of Garrett Brown's just invented at that point, Steadicam. Yeah. And Kubrick went berserk with the idea of what the Steadicam allowed him to do that nobody had done before. Yep. Whatever you want to say about the influence of King or, or the influence of Kubrick or about how people have adapted ideas that he's introduced visually, this was the movie where he was figuring out how do you even use a Steadicam as a storyteller? And he used it to put you in this hotel and create a sense of claustrophobia and make it so you felt like you were right there trapped with that kid, trapped with that family, and there was this dreamy, drifting, otherworldly, disconnected sense to everything that makes the film feel truly haunted. The Shining works on a bunch of different levels, and I, that's kind of a pun because the hotel also has many levels. Uh, it's dark, haunted house movie. It is also a, a parable about child abuse, child neglect, alcoholism, being unfit to be a parent, themes like that. And beyond all that, it is just a Gorgeous film to look at. That you want to talk about somebody showing off with Steadicam, that long shot where he's just following the kid on the big wheel, and the sound design as he goes over the the sound mix as he goes over the rugs. It is hypnotic, and it's clearly Kubrick saying, "Look what we can do." One of my favorite things about the movie is the the idea that. And it took me a long time. Like I, I, you see it at a certain age and you go back and you revisit it and you kind of rewatch it. And I love the idea that there is only one moment in the movie where there is only one explanation. And that is the supernatural is involved. The rest of the film, I can argue, is this happening to these people because they're isolated and they go crazy? Is it because the hotel actually has these things going on in it? But there is a moment where a rule gets broken or a line gets crossed and I can't explain it anyway, except the supernatural. Yeah. You know what the moment is? When he gets out of the freezer, something let him out. Yeah. So at that point, I have to accept that something else is happening in the hotel. But the whole rest of the movie, you can argue about what's going on and whether it's internal or external. And I love that. I, th I don't think that's an accident. I think that is a very clear choice where you go, all right, well, something's got to let him out. It's it's wonderful, and I think Kubrick, I think the work that he did with Diane Johnson uh, adapting the script is really heroic and smart. And you know, I know that King has has not only written another adaptation that that uh, Mick Garris directed for television, and he's commented on the fact that he doesn't like many of the choices that Kubrick made. But I think they're really bold, smart choices, and I think the film works because those choices were made and because the focus is the way it is in yeah. the movie. Having read uh, Stephen King's source material twice, I can understand 100% why he doesn't like the changes that were made. However, this is a brilliantly made, wonderfully scary, epic horror film that works for kids for one reason, works for adults for another reason. It is a fantastic horror film. And I bet that despite his disappointments at what was changed, I bet if you really pressed him, Stephen King would admit that this is a really good film. Might not be his book, but it's a good film. Yeah, in Dance Macabre, his book about sort of horror and the art of horror, he talks about it as something that he 
uh, considers a personal favorite. He's spoken well of it as well. Yeah, it's not. It he's going back and forth going, over the years. He's you know, it depends on what kind of mood you get him in. Sometimes ah, forget the shining and other times he says magnanimous things. But hey, if you wrote the shining and they made major changes, but the film still turned out good, you might it might bug you. I find uh, I find the kid performance in this movie really unsettling. That kid is disturbing, and I love the fact that he's not somebody we saw in seventy five other movies. Yeah, I and- think that everybody always talks about that. Oh, Nicholson's already manic, and Shelley Duvall is already way too fragile and frantic, and the kid is too inscrutable and and not lovable. I think that in a way they are like the dark satire of the American nuclear family. They're not necessarily supposed to be lovable dad, hardworking mom, sweet little kid. They're supposed to be, I think, like the worst case scenario. I don't think it's about the fact that the hotel makes you crazy. I think whatever you carry in, the hotel is just going to amplify and turn up. It's a place where you become because you're isolated, you become more yourself. And I think that's part of the horror of it is the fear that you aren't a very good person and that that's what's going to come out of you while you're up there. It's it's a terrific movie. And it's it's one of those that truly, over the course of time, the influence of it has been unbelievable. Uh, you see it in so much other stuff. And I think that uh, for Kubrick, you know, he, it was said that he would read books to try and find his next project. He would read the first 10 pages of something. And then his secretary would hear a boom against the wall. Cause he'd throw the book that he read the first 10 pages of. And she remembers when she brought the shining in, gave him the book and there was no boom. And there was just that long period. And I think it's a case where a filmmaker read a piece of material immediately knew what he wanted out of it. And then exactly pulled what he wanted I love this kind of adaptation where it's really bold and it becomes very personal. And the film that comes out of it could only have come from that filmmaker. Yeah. If he had stayed as close to the novel as King wanted, then it's almost what's the point. And then, you know, it's like we don't want a translation. We want an adaptation. You know, there's no way in 1980 they could have done uh, uh, murderous topiary animals. So now they have to now they have a hedge maze and, you know, you got to change things. And the ultimate argument is. Is The Shining as good a movie as The Shining is as a book? And I think they're like two towers, man. I think they are. I do. I think they're as as a book. The Shining is brilliant. And as a movie, The Shining is also brilliant. They're just different. Can we take a moment to talk about Scatman Crothers, who is astounding in this and almost couldn't give a fake performance. Like there was something so genuine about him in everything. Something in his eyes, especially you could see it a couple times in this film. There's something... Maybe never be accused of being the finest actor, but one of the most lovable and adored character actors that you'll ever find. And so essential to make that kid work, to to be that person that the kid would reach out to. Of course you would. If you had to find one sane person to reach out to in this world, it's Scatman. You just can't not love Scatman Crothers, and uh, yeah, he's missed. He's a, he was a great one. And that voice. Oh, God. Hong Kong Fooey. Loved him. All right, guys. Well, listen, this is when you look at this, it's not it's not that we did 500 movies, but oh, my God, the breadth of this month. We covered so much ground. We covered so many different kinds of things. And this is really we're just getting warmed up. So everything from Empire Strikes Back to Kill or Be Killed. What other podcast will do all that for you? May of 1980. Blam. Right in your ears. Next time we've got, like I said, a Burt Reynolds film that barely exists. We've got everyone's favorite sentient automobile asshole, Herbie. We have Robert Redford running a prison. 
And we have a road trip movie that almost inspired the title for this podcast, all featured when we come back for June of 1980. Two fighters against a Star Destroyer. Corp. 